Hello and welcome to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. I am your host, Gary Morgan. With me, as always, my good friend, Corey Crisson, beat writer for Pitt Athletics and Pittsburgh Steelers and general awesomeness that he writes and talks about <laughs> over at DK Pittsburgh Sports. How you doing, brother? Hi, Gary. Thanks for the uh, warm welcome there. Happy December, everybody. We're moving into an offseason of a lot of change for pit football and it's already begun. And then of course uh, we're going to chop up pit basketball with a, with a tough loss against Missouri earlier in the week and no rest for the weary because here comes Clemson, here comes West Virginia. So a big week in pit hoops coming up. Right. And I think uh, for me anyway, fair to say I came into the season with pretty low expectations. They raised my expectations. My expectations have course corrected a little bit. Sure. And I think we're going to get into some of the reasons why, because those two games in particular, Missouri and uh, Florida, a little bit of Oregon State, too. I think we saw some warts. I think we saw some things that got exposed. And I think we saw some other things that emerged. So we'll get into some of that towards the end of the show. Yep. We wanted to start with football because, you know, it's kind of going on in the background right now, even though Pitt is out of it. It's still an active time, right? Um, First thing on the agenda we should talk about are some of the departures and some of of those announcements of guys that are going to enter the transfer portal. Mm -hmm. Bengali Kamara is probably the biggest name on that list. I think so, too. And and with that whole linebackers room now essentially going through an overhaul. I mean, Shane Simon's graduating. Brandon George is transferring. Bengali Kamara is transferring, so all three starters are going to need replaced. And then Aiden Henningham and Buddy Mack, two options there, are also transferring. So that's really the big spot right now where Pitt is losing its depth, its production, all of that going into next year. And then on the flip side, we got some massive news on Friday with Gavin Bartholomew. And the speculation was pretty wild about him potentially leaving and the options for him, of course, coming out of high school were really, really numerous. I mean, Penn State being one of them. And, uh, you know, I had speculation that some more power fives were going to inquire with him yeah. um, if he was going to enter. And on Friday, Gavin announced he's staying. He's staying at Pitt. Now, if you look at the tweet that he posted, he tagged, you know, Alliance 412 with the NIL Collective. So link those dots how you may. But I, that's all I can really say is just, you know, that's the era of college football that we're in. So with Kamara going, and Kamara's going to have huge interest. He was a four-star recruit out of Akron. Um, a lot of power fives offered him. So he's going to have a lot of interest. Right. Uh, but those are the two big pendulums as of, as of this week when it comes to pit football was the departure of Kamara. Now, some others left too, uh, DeAndre Jules, Nate Temple, being a couple of them on the defensive side of the ball. We haven't really seen any offensive players announce any intent to transfer just yet. So perhaps that comes this week, of course, after championship weekend in college football. So I I think it's only beginning for Pitt, and there's going to be a lot of turnover. You know, I think last year it was close to 11 or 12 transfers that left. I think it'll be more than that. And, uh, you know, we'll see in the coming weeks here what exactly is going to happen. That portal opens December 4th. So the portal opens on Monday. So we will see exactly who goes in. So something that affects something that affects these decisions pretty 
pretty drastically is, you know, making a change to an offensive coach or a defensive coach. And obviously Pitt is in the process of, of making a change there at offensive coordinator. So any news on that? Well, the, the coaching staff was out recruiting this week and today they're coming back into Pittsburgh essentially today. So I'm just lining up a timeline of events here. Okay. So Pitt ends its season last Saturday against Duke. Then they go out and recruit and, and do their meetings, you know, early in the week and they go out and recruiting towards the end of the week. And then I'm assuming they're coming back to Pittsburgh or at least the area today. Now championship weekend being the power five championships, all the conference championships going on. We saw the pac 12 last night, a really good game there. But if Pitt's going to get an offensive coordinator from one of these other power five schools that are playing this weekend, they're going to have to wait until Sunday at minimum to interview them. So there was a name floated around out of Georgia. Um, looking at the current wide receivers coach there, Brian McClendon, there was a name floated around as a potential candidate. And if that's the case, then he's not going to be able to interview till at least Sunday. And obviously Georgia is going to be playing uh, Alabama for the SEC championship today as we record this. Right. So that's a name that's being floated around as a potential candidate to replace Frank Signetti, who was fired on Monday. And I mentioned it last week. This is a move that had to happen. There, there was no way that Frank Signetti could sustain his pit offensive coordinator. They could not go into this offseason with Frank Signetti, a coordinator. And now, you know, a lot of that hangs in the balance. Now, I kind of go back to the Bartholomew announcement from Friday of, hey, I'm staying and the timing of it. Now, I'm not saying I know anything on this matter, but this is just me trying to connect dots here. I don't know if Gavin knows anything about that coordinator search or not. Um, I haven't talked to Gavin, obviously, about it, so I can't really say what he knows. But what I could say is I found it interesting that he he made that announcement on Friday and not on Monday, so to speak, where you know potential interviewees could have come into pit over the weekend or they could have lined up some candidates and kept the team in the know. So I found that kind of interesting. But again, I, I don't know exactly what's on the mind of Gavin. And, and again, it could did. be as simple as uh, you know Pat Narduzzi takes him aside and says, "Listen, I don't know who we're hiring." But whoever it is, they're going to use the tight end. It could and be that. Going to use them a lot. Now again, I found it. it. <laughs> I found it interesting that Gavin tagged Alliance four one two in that in that. Hey, I'm coming back. Tweet. So again, make yeah, that what you I, will. I agree, and he hasn't put really because of the way Pitts used him. There, right. there's not a lot of like super impressive tape on him. I'm sure. So well, there's some there's some tape out there, but it's not a lot. I mean, it, it's right. no secret he was underutilized here. He was perhaps undervalued here in the Signetti offense. Um, another another top candidate that's being floated around is Seth Luttrell. He's the former head coach at North Texas. Um, he, he's been an OC at Arizona, Indiana, North Carolina. So he knows this league. So we're still really early. I, it's going to be a fast process, I feel like, when it comes to this offensive coordinator hiring. I feel like right. it's going to happen within the week. And perhaps when we roll on H2P next Saturday, we're going to be talking about, you know, we're going to be talking about the um, – you know, a new offensive core. I feel like we're going to be doing that. I feel like it's going to be a, a really quick process. And if it's one of those two names, if it's the Georgia receivers coach McClendon, then I would anticipate an interview happens sooner rather than later. But again, all of this is surface area kind of stuff right now, given conference championship weekend still going on. So what you're saying is all of your experience, you're not today confirming that they're hiring Matt Canada. No, I will not confirm that. <laughs> I will not confirm that. I said this in my live cues on Monday. Uh, it would be the most twisted, 
sick PR stunt to pull ever (laughs) because of the notoriety that Matt Canada earned as the Steelers OC. And like in a, in a real twisted way, it would bring a lot of public attention to pit football. So I don't know. I don't know if they want to do that, but as they say, Gary, good, all publicity is good publicity. So I don't think it'll happen, but if it did, I think it would be very uh, much a publicity thing. I think you're right. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk a little bit about Pat Narduzzi, how, how his season went, and and really why maybe some of the reactions to how this season went. Maybe you should pump the brakes on We're back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. I am your host, Gary Morgan. Corey's with me still. And we're going to pick up where we left off and talk a little bit about Pat Narduzzi because I think it was pretty hard to deny it was a bad season for him. But every time that you that you want to, to consider thinking that Pat Narduzzi is probably overstayed his welcome here or maybe his message is getting lost or this was a horrific season and blah 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 maybe it was all about Kenny Pickett anything you want to do like that you always get smacked in the face with the NFL backing up that what Narduzzi does is right Mm -hmm. you got two stories that came out from the NFL this week Corey that I think back up why Pat Narduzzi keeps getting shots and yep. keeps and keeps getting patience. You got Kalijah Cansey earning a league-wide nod as a defensive uh, rookie of the month for November. We all saw what he could do, and, and we all saw how he was schemed into, into being as effective as he was because he was undersized from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And we've, we're seeing that carry over into the NFL. And speaking of that, we're seeing Brian Flores of the Minnesota um, Vikings implementing some of Pat Narduzzi's defensive concepts. Yeah, let's start with Cansey and 10 tackles, seven for loss, two sacks in the month of November. I mean, go back and watch the tape. I put it in our feed on DKPittsburghSports.com. Go back and watch the tape just of his sack against the Colts on Sunday last week. Like, he shot out of a cannon. He was up up right when the ball was snapped. He was the first one, offense or defensive line, that was up. And, and getting ready to go. And I mean, his burst has been incredible and he sustained an injury in, in training camp and has been banged up at least in the early, excuse me, early parts of the season. But man, he has been really good as of late. And, and I think it's a well-deserved nod. I mean, when, when you're talking about rookies of the month, the offensive rookie of the month was CJ Stroud, who is a arguable top three or four MVP candidate right now in the league. No so doubt. when you're a rookie and you're producing along the likes of that kind of name, you're doing something right. And and this is really no surprise to anybody who's watched Pitt. You know, yes, he's undersized, so to speak, for a DT, but his speed and his agility and his quickness and his IQ are off the charts. And that's why, you know, he was a first round pick. And then when it comes to the Brian Flores thing, I found that super interesting. For those that don't know, there was a story published by ESPN, the uh, Vikings reporter for ESPN about how Brian Flores would go over to the pit side of the building when he was here with the Steelers, when he was an assistant for Mike Tomlin. 
He would go over to the pit side and watch film with Tyquan Underwood, the wide receivers coach. And he saw stuff from the Narduzzi defense that the, the quote from the story was he was enamored by. And he's taken some of those concepts over to Minnesota and has implemented them into this current Vikings defense. And I found it kind of funny in the story that it mentioned uh, Patrick Jones, who's a current D lineman for the Vikings, didn't recognize that this was happening. He didn't recognize like this is part of Narduzzi's scheme and his system. And, and now it's flourishing in the NFL in a way. And the Vikings have kind of been surging over recent months, especially after losing Kirk Cousins and Justin right, Jefferson right. for a while. So like that has helped Minnesota stay afloat, so to speak in the postseason race. And I found that story super interesting. If you didn't, if you didn't read it or you don't know about this, it's in our feed on DKPittsburghSports.com. I have the link in there. Um, really good stuff from ESPN. And I found that fascinating that, you know, like you said, and we've talked about this with at least the defense with guys like Jordan Whitehead, who's producing at a high level now and, Damar Hamlin, who was producing at a high level before his cardiac arrest happened last year. And when you look at guys like, you know, in the, on the defensive line, like how, uh, like a Kalijah Kansi, but also like a Rashad Weaver, like a lot of guys have been drafted and are producing in this league. Damari Mathis is another. And it, it's a real testament. You know, we've talked about like the building of the ACC championship team. This is kind of the fruits of that. These guys right. were all part of that. And it's that championship kind of like DNA, so to speak, that translates over to the NFL. And you're seeing a lot of players have quite a bit of success in a lot of different spots. And there's a lot of reason to believe that a guy like MJ Devonshire or Marquez Williams, while they might not be first round picks, can find a way to succeed at the next level because of that system. Exactly. So I don't know. I guess what I could say is this was a horrible season. No bones about it. Oh, yeah. And and I understand the era. Yeah. Sure. And I understand why, you know, a lot of people wanted to toss him in the hot seat. But I think if you really step back and look at the body of work here and, and kind of just allow for this to be the low point, maybe take out the ACC championship as the high point. I think your the body of work from Narduzzi in this level of college is pretty good. I'm, I'm, what's I think I'm going to sit ex- tight. <laughs> for what's expected of Pitt in this era of college football, where Ohio State, Penn State are are really just dominating as far as recruiting and five stars and four stars, like Narduzzi has to adapt his system to develop. Like that's what we, we've talked about this forever, about how Narduzzi can develop and he can find these three stars and turn them into something. And this year, I think, was a was a really good example of what happens when that system has flaws, when that system doesn't work like it should. And look, we could talk about anything as far as the spectrum of this season, you know, going back to the Louisville game and how Christian Bayer led Pitt to a win there. We could talk about Pat Narduzzi's comments after the Notre Dame game about, you know, not having requisite pieces essentially. And then, you know, he obviously backed it up by saying it starts with coaching. Like it does start with coaching and you have to have the requisite pieces. It's a, it's a process. It, it is sure. a, it is a math equation by addition. You know, you have to have one plus one equal two in this situation. And in this case, zero plus zero equals zero, or in this case, three and nine. So right. like, it's going to be a big off season in terms of who's going to be the pieces that are in place next year to, to, so to speak, absorb all of that, to, 
be able to be the next in line. Like he built this ACC championship team from two years ago, right? Like when you, when you get guys like, like Hamlin and Mathis and Pickett and all the offensive linemen and Abanacanda and Cansey, he built that. That wasn't just like go pluck the five stars and four stars off the recruiting wire. That was a built program championship. And it started in that 2018 appearance. So this was a thing that had to be built over time. And then a lot of those guys, if not the majority of those guys left over the last two years. And this is what happens. Now you have to kind of reset, so to speak. And they tried to keep themselves at the same level by utilizing the transfer portal. And, and they had to fill holes with the transfer portal. It just happened. And they had their own departures as well. So, you, you know, you got to use it to fill it. And I, I understand that, but you're not going to get that same level of buy-in from guys that just came in from a mid-major or, or even another power five school, as opposed to these guys that played with you for four or five years. Right. You know, it, you're talking the difference between a family and a pickup basketball game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's not the same thing. And I just think uh, at Pitt, Unfortunately, just like the Pirates, there is no path without patience, I think, for for winning seasons. Uh, And that's just what we're going to watch. Basketball, on the other hand, which we're going to talk about after the break, well, you can change that whole thing here if you want. (laughs) So let's take a quick break and come back and talk about that. Here we are back on the HTP podcast, Corey. It's time to talk a little hoops. You know, this is some of my favorite stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah. And we're going to backtrack a little. I know you already covered some of this stuff in your last podcast, but you had to fly solo on. But I just kind of wanted to step back and look at the collective of what happened in that NIT tournament that that Pitt was involved in with, with Florida and, and Oregon State. And then adding into that Missouri following up after that. I think we learned some things about this team. First of all, I think Carrington is probably the most talented guard they have, but he also is very raw. I think we saw like them eliminating his ability to drive to the left has screwed with his head and forced him into some really rushed decisions that almost look sloppy. Um, I think that stuff will come with time. He's very, very young. So I hope everybody understands that. Same with Lau. One of them just kind of needs to clean up the ball presentation and running a half-court offense a little bit, I think. I agree with that. And I think a lot of us are pumping the brakes on the fourth overall pick in the draft production. Yeah. I think we're pumping Probably. the brakes on that after you know they play four mid-majors, four bye games, and he was dominant in those. Great to see there. But as I mentioned last week, and I'm, I won't go too far into this because I gave my thoughts last week. I think we learned that Carrington has room to develop as a ball handler, like you said. And I think the big thing is going left. And I'm not saying he can't go left, but what I'm saying is he has a very habitual thing of going left, taking three or four dribbles, stopping on a dime, and either shooting it or passing it or having to pass it. I don't think he's built that up yet as far as yeah, confidence right. goes, as far as even pure skill goes. I think there's something there that has to be unlocked with Carrington. So 
We saw that in the Florida game and how Florida defended him. That was their entire defensive game plan was to take away Carrington's uh, right hand. He had a decent game, but he didn't have a great game. And then for the fact of that matter, Missouri, he didn't shoot it at a high level either. So I, I think what you've seen in the, in the first two tests of the season, the first two at least major tests, like Oregon State, what, Oregon State, you could say it's a power six program. It's a, it's a Pac-12 school, but like their Ken Palm was like 140, you know, like right. it, it, what, they weren't highly ranked. Like Pitt was supposed to win that game pretty handily. Pitt was supposed to win that game, but there's still something you can take away from that game because Oregon State had one player that really Pitt should have kind of been worried about, and that one player lit them up. Yeah. So like, yeah, they played okay, but they couldn't stop that one player. You know, and I think when you only have to shut down one team's weapon, one weapon, you ought to be able to do that when you've got trees on all over your roster, right? So I guess I was a little disappointed that they didn't use their size mismatch to just shut down that weapon. They won, and they won handily. I'm nitpicking. But I'm saying if you want to learn from a game, that's what I learned from it. They didn't have the ability to shut down the obvious weapon. Mm-hmm. What was your biggest takeaway for the Missouri game? Missouri game. Uh, first of all, they're just not as good as Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, second. Um, do you think six, seven games is enough to learn that shooting free throws is important? Cause I mean, the last team learned it really quick and this one needs to as well. They, they, they really need to the guards, especially the ish Lau, um, Bub, you know, Austin, those guys all need to be making all, almost all their free throws. I'm sorry. They need to at least be hitting 65, 70%. And we're, and we're not seeing that. And this team cannot win unless they hit their free throws. They can't. Getting into foul trouble and using those bigs to get people into foul trouble is going to have to be a major part of their winning scheme. I also think they've been inefficient from three-point range, um, at least less than last year at this point. And I'm not saying that's creating bad opportunities, but there were some shots that, at least in the Missouri game, you were kind of scratching your head yeah. at. Like, why they forced that? Why they put that up? Why did they make that decision? Like, I think what we learned is that, yes, you could beat four bye games in a row. You could beat Jacksonville by 50. But when you have to face, quote-unquote, real competition when it comes to you know, the Florida and the Missouri of the world. There's some things you just can't get away with. You can't get away with bad shot selection. You can't get away with missing free throws. It's good that they're taking these lumps early as they did last year, right? Now, like they didn't have to sustain a 30-point blowout to Michigan again sure. or, or lose to VCU like they did again or lose to Vanderbilt again. Like those were the turning points that Jeff Capel himself has said, like, yeah, after the Brooklyn trip and after the Vanderbilt loss, like we, we figured it out. Like we found a way to kick it in gear. And it was a it was kind of a trial by fire in some cases last year. Now it's about doing it again after sustaining two losses in the two toughest games of the year to date. And now they have to face Clemson, who's pretty darn good with PJ Hall, and then go to Morgantown on Wednesday, hostile environment. So they got to regroup quickly. They had a few days to prepare for Clemson. So, you know, they should be rested at least for Sunday. And and by the way, having that game on a Sunday at 2 p.m. is kind of stupid. Like we could that, especially during the Steelers game. Like I, don't I know, know he was thinking there. I know. I'll probably watch both, but that's because I'm a junkie. So yeah. let's talk one more thing here. Blake Henson. 
he's the leader of this team by default. He's the only one that was here really last year contributing. You know, I mean, the Diaz Graham brothers and Fetty, but like, you know, Henson's the leader. Can this team ever get that shot selection thing under control with Blake Henson being the leader? Because Blake Henson is most effective when you put no restrictions on when he can shoot and what is a good shot to him. That said, he has the ability to go cold just as much as he has the ability to go hot, right? He can either go 9 for 9 or he can go 0 for 9. Mm-hmm. He's going to take bad shots. So how do you tell everyone else on the court they're not allowed to? Well, I don't think you could do that. But I think what's going to open up those shots for him is when you have effective and efficient guard play and when you have effective and efficient you know, shooting and when you have effective and efficient ways of getting to the hole and getting fouled and going to the line and making your free throws. Like, I think all of that other stuff will open up opportunities for Blake. And again, what we're talking about with Bub Carrington, when he was hitting it, when he was hitting it in his shots, Blake was getting opportunities as well because teams had to focus attention on the perimeter to Blake or uh, to, to Bub rather. But now, Bub isn't exactly shooting it efficiently and Lowe isn't coming off the off the bench and shooting it efficiently yet. And Leggett's kind of slowed down a little bit. So those opportunities are going to open up things for Blake. And we know Blake's range. If he gets it on the logo, he'll fire it and he'll make them. But yeah. that's not a sustainable force. So there's there's a balancing act, so to speak. And I think that, quite frankly, Federico has to step up. I don't think Federico has played well at all this season to start yet. And, and I think... He's been picked up by the Diaz mm-hmm. Graham twins off the bench. I think they've done a nice job, but I think Federico has to step it up too. I think they've done a nice job, but I also think it's pretty telling that we're still talking about needing Federico as opposed to replacing Federico with Guillermo because Fetty is still better. It's right. That's the thing. And, and I, I've, I've been frustrated by Fetty because I'm watching him. I'm watching him down low and he's got such a size advantage and he's even thickened up so it's not like he's the same twig that he was last year right where you kind of could understand it but when he gets the ball inside i i think just stop thinking about it so much and go up with it big boy like Mm -hmm. he just seems to almost want the free throws instead and i'm sorry that ain't his strength no, and even when he gets to the line, he hasn't been hitting his free throws. So. Right, that's what I mean. It's not his strength to be putting free throws in. He needs to yeah, be dropping bunnies. Yeah, he needs to. Uh, a quick note also before we get out of here. Uh, Pitt Volleyball opened up their NCAA tournament. They were one seed. Uh, they, they opened up their NCAA tournament with a sweep over Coppin State Friday, and then they face USC tonight at the Pete. So a big matchup. It's a top 25 matchup. Uh, the winner gets to the Sweet 16. So Pitt Volleyball is on, on yet another quest to the Final Four. This would, I believe, be their third Final Four appearance in the row if they get there. And uh, really good stuff coming from them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I have a lot of time to be watching volleyball because of everything else I cover. But I have gone to the Pete a couple times to watch this because it's such a phenom. Oh, it's a show. Yeah, It's, it's a, a show. phenom what they're doing. It really is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you want... This is one of those ones I think personally transcends the sport. I may not be a huge volleyball fan, but the spectacle of that team and what they're doing, you have to see it. And and I I truly suggest see it in person because it's just an environment that kind of blew me away a little bit. Mm -hmm. It was almost a packed house on the whole lower bowl at the Peterson last time I went. 
the town, the town and the university are rallying behind it. And it's great to see because I think when you have your Olympic sports coming up like this, and when you have your Olympic sports popularized like this, especially when the football didn't do great, uh, like that brings something into it. And it's hard to take these Olympic sports and not necessarily not from a pit standpoint to win with them, but to get so much fan support behind it, because let's be honest in this town is a pro town. And, you know, if you had a choice between going to the Pete on a Sunday or going to a Steelers game on a Sunday, you're more likely going to pick the Steelers game or watch the Steelers game or, or whatever it is. So the success of this program is different from what I'm talking about here but it's good to see the support rallying behind it when they could pack the Pete. And I think another important thing about this is accessibility and the ACC network is one thing, but I think it's extremely important. And I give a ton of credit to them for doing this. And that's broadcasting the games on the radio on 93, seven. I think that's a massive, massive deal that they're doing that. And that in that odyssey and 93, seven made that call to broadcast pit volleyball on the radio. So that either when you're driving and flipping through channels and you hear, oh, what's this? And you, and you might get hooked into it from that standpoint. It's a different channel. I think part of the, um, I don't want to call it a problem, but I think part of the discussion about, you know, why these some of these Olympic sports don't rise like you think they should is because of accessibility, right? If you could watch Pitt women's lacrosse, who had a couple of good years in their first two as a program, if you could watch it easier or listen to it easier, you'd be more inclined to do it. You know, that's why, you know, when it comes to the NFL, for example, they're king on TV and they're king on TV because there are a billion ways to watch these NFL games. If you're a Steelers fan living in Colorado, you could buy a package so you could get the Steelers game every Sunday or every whatever it is, you know? Yeah. But when it comes to some of these college sports, you have to have the right, the requisite subscription to do it. It's not readily available. You know, you could go out of your way to watch pit volleyball on the ACC network, but not many people are solely subscribing to the ACC network just to watch pit volleyball. If that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. I I get it. And the Peterson event center to be blunt, not the easiest place to get to. Like, no, it's not. It's really really not. not. Like even going, I go to a fair share of basketball games. It's, it's not easy to get there. So, for me to to find a way to make it there for a, a random volleyball match in the middle of November or December, I, eh, I'm probably not doing it. Yeah, you know, like just realistically. But I, right. I think it's awesome that they're shelling out and and they're they're killing it. And I'm glad about the radio. I didn't know that. That's cool. I don't listen to that that channel, so anything they replace is fair game for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope it's drive time. right right or the 7 p.m but like they played it on sundays at noon and like again when the steelers are on people are just going to watch and listen to the steelers so sure but if you got a spare eye use the corner of it check it out like give it a shot i think you'll you'll kind of find yourself impressed i really do i agree i agree that's all i got brother i think we should end the show the way we always do h2p